millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we're exploring a particularly interesting and little considered aspect of the naval history of the Second World War, the relationship between Hitler and the Kriegsmarine. Hitler was the commander-in-chief of all German armed forces, including the Kriegsmarine, and yet he was a man with no experience or real understanding of sea power. The result was a strange and fractious relationship with his navy, which was ill-equipped, poorly manned, and, more importantly, poorly understood by the Nazi leadership, to the extent that, in 1942, after an Allied convoy successfully made it to Russia in the dead of winter, and in spite of an aggressive German force sent out to intercept it, including a pocket battleship and a heavy cruiser, Hitler publicly and furiously denounced the navy and demanded that all heavy German warships should be scrapped. The Admiral of the Fleet, Erich Rader, resigned and was replaced by Karl Dönitz, the head of the U-boat fleet. Dönitz's first job, and one successfully negotiated, was to convince Hitler not to scrap his entire surface fleet. But from then on, they primarily remained in harbour, so not only inoperational, but also vulnerable to Allied bombing attacks. It's a fascinating conundrum at the very heart of the otherwise formidable Nazi war machine, and to consider this question helps us understand the broader role of the impact of sea power on the course and ultimate outcome of the Second World War, and it also helps us understand Hitler as a man and as a political and military leader. To help explain all of this, I spoke with Frank McDonough. I've known Frank for some years, and it's always a treat talking to him. Until his retirement, Frank was Professor of International History at Liverpool John Moores University, but continues to write. His magnificent two-volume history, The Hitler Years, is one of the best books I've ever read on the period, and his book on the Gestapo is a masterpiece of how to unpick myth from reality. 
And to top it all off, he's incredibly good company and has a particularly keen eye for the entertaining and ridiculous themes that we do uncover in the process of our historical research. I have to admit I spent the rest of the day giggling about Hitler being a deranged Peter Pan and why Hitler's relationship with the Kriegsmarine is best explained by a stick of Blackpool rock and thinking about the summer of love. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the truly wonderful Frank. You really could not ask for a better companion with whom to explore the Second World War. Frank, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Sam. Um, so let's explore Hitler's relationship with his navy. Um, firstly, in terms of his rise to power, do you think he kind of considered how the navy was going to fit into his future plans? Well, if you look at Mein Kampf, he talks about the First World War and why Germany lost. And he says Germany lost because it got into a naval rivalry with Great Britain, you know, inflamed its empire. And that was why Britain joined the war. So he said, the first thing that I would try and do if I came to power was to come to some kind of agreement with the British, especially over the Navy. Yeah. That's interesting that he was thinking about it that early on. Those early years, you know, sort of 33 to 39, where it's all full of, you know, political cunning manoeuvres, as far as I can work out. Um, but do you think that the the, the maritime world then um, sort of established itself as a rock in his thinking for the coming years? I think he wanted to uh, gain this naval agreement. And in fact, Germany did gain a naval agreement in 1935, the Anglo-German Naval Agreement, which gave Germany the right to build up to 35% of the strength of the Royal Navy. Now, you might say, well, that's good. That's a good deal for Britain, isn't it? No, it wasn't, because the Versailles Treaty gave us prohibition on Germany building anything. So we, we recognise Germany's right to rearm and the right for it to build a navy, which was a mistake, really. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, in terms of Hitler's own military experience, um, was he purely army and land-based? Yes, it, it, Hitler wasn't a sailor, <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, he, 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 didn't go on, uh, he didn't go on boats that much. He went on a cruise, a couple of cruises, I think. But he liked the idea of having new battleships and things like that and launching them. But really, his whole strategy was to gain territory in Eastern Europe with a huge land army and huge military equipment. So he, his thinking was very military. And in a sense, you could say that's one of the reasons why he was very poor at global strategy in the Second World War. He never really, and also the, the, the idea of invading Britain, he, he never really saw that that was an impossibility from where Germany was. I mean, they, 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 they had a plan. It was called the Z plan to build, you know, eight battleships by, you know, 1942 or whatever. But it was impossible. You know yourself, Sam, you know, you can't build battleships in a week. You know, they take years. So if you want to have a strong navy, you're going to have to plan, what, four, five, six years ahead. And everything in the Plan Z never really came off. They never really had the battleships. That's why, you know, they 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 lost the 
the Battle of Britain. And that's where uh, Dernitz comes in. Because Dernitz was really a, a submarine expert. I, that's yeah. what he was. Yeah. Did he let his um, admirals like Raider or Dernitz kind of exert their own authority or was he very heavy handed with the Navy? Um, he, he, he gave the Navy quite a lot of latitude. The main reason being was it was very loyal to him all the way through the war. And even in the, the famous Valkyrie plot, they couldn't find a, a, anyone from the Navy. So Hitler was like, look at them. They're all, you know, they're all these officers surrounding me, he said. And they're all called von this and von that. They're all from the old aristocracy. He said, but he couldn't oh, find a single naval person. And, you know, and Dernitz was extremely loyal. And that was the reason why he made him president uh, in, in his last will and testament. Well, he, he also wanted the cocker snook at the, uh, the military as well. But he, he liked Dernitz. Dernitz was a, a very committed Nazi. It's odd because he only became a Nazi member in 1944. So you'd say, oh, he took his time to join. Yeah. When, the, when the Allies were putting together the prosecution at the Nuremberg trials, they went through all of Dernitz's papers and they found so much that was pro-Hitler, Hitler as a messiah, very anti-Semitic. He's got rid of the Jews. He's controlling the Jews, and this is a good thing. So he was incredibly um, loyal to Hitler, and he was a committed Nazi. There was a little bit after the war. He spent 10 years in prison um, after the war for war crimes. He didn't. He, he only got, he got um, convicted over organizing um, submarines, unrestricted submarine uh, campaign. Um, but he came out after 10 years. What's really odd? <laughs> and if you've seen the Odessa file, you know, with John Voigt, you'll know what I'm talking about here. There was kind of a little shrine to him every year. And when he died, 100,000 people turned out. Wow. And there was a lot of embarrassment you know, from the German, the West German government. They were really embarrassed. Why was 100,000 people turning out for this kind of, you know, Nazi war criminal. And the truth was that he was still admired. There were still people from that era who were admired, and he was one of them. Yeah. So we can say that maybe Hitler um, knew of that loyalty, had a closer relationship with Dönitz, which oh, is yes. why he made, made Oh, him. yes, it comes out. He, he talks to other people, you know, in his um, table talks. Uh, that that were recorded in in the uh, you know the military headquarters that he had in uh, Rastenburg, in Poland. He says he says Dernitz, he's a loyal man. He's extremely loyal. He said if I if I ask him to do something, he does it. He was the perfect sort of person for Hitler. Hitler liked people who admired him, didn't talk much, and accepted all of his orders without question and 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 Dernitz was one of those and I think yeah. that that was helped his rise it helped his rise in the war really yeah it's so different to his predecessor Raider yes and, um, and what went went on there can you tell us a little about him well Raider was much more of a kind of old-fashioned German sort of statesman you know from the kind of old conservative wing he was never really as sort of committed to Nazism as was uh, Dernitz. And uh, he had this idea that, you know, um, Germany should try and build a huge navy and maybe make make a, an impact in, in the long term, really. And sort of gradually that strategy didn't look like it was going to work. 
Whereas Danitz was saying, look, the best way for us to make an impact in this war is to build more submarines. If we could build more submarines, we could knock out more merchant shipping and we could really make some kind of impact. So that's what why when he weighed up about hanging on to Dernitz, sorry, hanging on to Raider or moving to Dernitz, he obviously wanted to go with the submarines. He thought that maybe that's the way we can get back into this war. Yeah, because there's this crisis moment where he he kind of scraps the high seas fleet. He gets rid of Raider and says, you know, this is all over. Let's do something different. Yeah, because it's like what you said at the beginning. You know, was he interested in the navy? It's basically like throw all the toys out the pram. You know, let's just get all the submarines and move on. That yeah, he, I think it's because it's interesting that he he, he makes um, Dernitz the leader of the navy on the 30th of January, 1943, just a few hours before uh, Germany is going to surrender at Stalingrad. So obviously he wants to come out with some new strategy and he knows that nobody believes that Germany can build all of these, as Ray was saying, build all these battleships. But he does think that the idea of like saying they're going to build, he says that they announced they're going to build 400 submarines. Um, uh, quickly, um, but by 1944, they do start turning out a lot of submarines. In a way, Germany's failure in the war is this lack of a, stra- a global strategy beyond the military. It's all the military and the and the Luftwaffe, and with scant regard to to the to the navy. And this is why you know there's all these people go around you know saying, oh Britain was all alone, oh Britain had no chance in the war, oh look at Britain. You know my view, and I think it was borne out by the statistics of what Paul Kennedy said. He said, believe me, he said Britain could have held its own in that war all the way through in a long war with this huge navy, this impenetrable uh, territory that couldn't be invaded, and this huge ally in America willing to, to, to bankroll. He said, even, even on those terms, Britain could have stayed in this war, and therefore he never would have defeated Britain. Now, that's an interesting that's an interesting line of argument, I think, because most people have this idea, you know, of Hitler... Germany was a huge superpower. It was bamboozling itself across Europe. The truth was Germany was a middle-ranking power and Mm. it was not capable of becoming a superpower. And that's what the war showed. And one of its big drawbacks was it didn't have a navy to match Britain or to match the USA. Of course, when the USA came in, I mean, look at the dominance of the USA and British navies when they came in. You know, they started to develop ways of dealing with submarine attacks as well. You know, these these sorts of pack hunting groups that went went after them, um, which was successful. And the convoys, you know, they were able to protect the convoys. And they started knocking out a huge amount of uh, German submarines. It's an interesting fact, but it's it's a sobering one, that 75% of every German who served on a submarine was killed. 75%. 75%. Now, name me a war where 75% of the combatants got killed. I mean, even you're talking about the Battle of the Somme, it's, it's, it's sort of 14% or something is the highest in the First World War. Even things like the, the Battle of Stalingrad, it's like 22%. We're talking 75%. So it was like kind of three to one on that you'd get killed if you enter the German submarine. 
Yeah, and that must have been like a kind of a once that started rolling, it would have got worse because there'd be less experienced people to take, exactly, take control point, when yeah, something yeah. went wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that's the that's the case. You're bringing in novices all the time. You're going right down the pecking order here. Um, yeah. You know, and, and operating submarines is it's a difficult thing. The other part of it was, and this is another thing, you know, the Allies were well ahead in intelligence. You know, in intelligence, the Allies absolutely wiped the floor with Germany. And it was in the naval area where they 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 were dominant in that, you know, Bletchley Park broke the codes, etc. And by doing that, Germany was really in a bad way. They were able to b- build better radar systems to track submarines and they they built these hunter packs you know the americans were particularly good and the canadians actually they were particularly good at building these hunter packs supported by air air support and they were knocking out um submarines left right and center and in the sense that's why dernitz gave up winning the battle of the atlantic he'd never been able to get a foothold in knocking out atlantic vessels anyway and then when they brought in these hunter packs he gave up in 1943, the middle of 1943, he gives up the Battle of the Atlantic. He knows it can't be won. He tries to build more submarines. I think that was the big mistake, really, because if you look at the early part of the war, Sam, you know, 39 September to Christmas, the Germans only had 57 submarines. But my God, they were knocking out some, some big, big uh, beasts here. They were knocking out a couple of British major battleships. They were knocking out merchant ships left, right and centre. So you, you just think to yourself, and, 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 and Dernitz did say this. He said, if I'd have had 400 operable submarines at the beginning of the war, we could have knocked out the German, you know, we could have knocked out the whole uh, Royal Navy especially the merchant fleet, and starved people out. Hmm. I wonder how quickly they realised, Dönitz and the others realised the writing was on the wall, that they actually weren't going to win and they were losing such a high percentage of men. I mean, do you think it was in 40-41 or was that not really until the end of the war? I think you've got to say that, you know, Dönitz was a very, um, you know, he's very expert on, on the whole strategy of the Navy. All the way through, right back in the 30s, he was saying to Hitler, look, we can't build a massive battle fleet to challenge the British Empire. We could build submarines, he said, if you went down, down that road. And he said in the war, the only hope was to build more submarines. So his strategy was to build more submarines. And he really didn't think that Germany could win a naval war. He was very, for example, take the discussions over Operation Sea Line. If you look at the actual meetings that they had, it's Dana to saying, look, this isn't possible. You know, they're saying they're going to get these flat bottom boats and take them across the channel. He said, you try it. He said, you know, <laughs> the channel is so choppy. The water is so choppy. He said, they'll all fall off before they get over. He said, so I, he said, I don't see it's conceivable that we could get in these flat bottom boats past the, the British defences. And he, he listed all the, you know, they have got 16 battleships, you know, <laughs> 187 cruisers, you know, and he listed all these things. And they've also got, you know, some, some airplanes as well. He said, so it would be, they, we'd be sitting ducks, he said, on these, bar- that was what he, they had planned to have these barges. I mean, we modified modified them for the D-Day land and where they were, they weren't barges, really. They were much better than barges, what we, we created. 
Yeah, um, and the, the, so, the key difference, obviously, between D-Day and, and what they were suggesting is that the you know the Allies controlled the sea. Exactly. Well, <laughs> Which is, well, exactly. And, I mean, D-Day is a classic example of how much the Allies control the sea. He tried to send 16 submarines in to the battle zone on, on D-Day, and they got knocked out. <laughs> you know, the, the Allies would become so adept, really, in, in every aspect of naval war. And I would say, and it... And it you know, we we talk. We always talk about the war. We talk about you know the the battles in the east, and they were important. But the naval war was extremely important, and Britain and America absolutely won the naval war everywhere, and that was decisive because it kept Britain's trade going. It kept the ammunition flowing in from America to to Britain during the D Day and the aftermath of D Day and the march on. You know, so these things were, were very important. And also they did strangle, you know, German trade. You know, German trade was strangled. Towards the end of 44, they were getting, you know, they were on rations and things like that. So I, I think the Navy gets a a kind of bad overall press. You know, general histories tend to ignore the Navy or even in D-Day, it's always the, 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 the lads who turn up at, uh, you know, at a gold beach or whatever, who get, who get the... But the Navy was vital. The Navy actually bombardments in, in most of these battles were also vital, especially at D-Day. So I think we need to readjust the way we look at the Second World War. And we, we, we don't just say, you know, like a lot of people say, oh, you know, the, the Churchill gave the speeches, the Americans gave the money and the Russians gave the blood. But the truth is that we gave a lot of expertise, intelligence, um, great planning. Okay, we didn't actually, you know, we didn't kill all our own citizens. <laughs> you know, we managed not to kill our own citizens and to become dominant. Um, and the dominance of the of the Royal Navy and the American Navy in the Second World War was absolutely overwhelming. Overwhelming. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Following. Yeah. It's interesting you were saying about, you know, Donut said, you know, if we had 400 subs at the beginning of the war. Um, and often the the ability of the Germans to create a naval power is considered in terms of logistics and engineering what about the money who who would donuts have been how did that work who would donuts have been arguing with saying actually i need this much money to build another hundred submarines well someone he saying, was, actually i need the money to build some the airplanes. person who he was arguing with was uh gearing because gearing was in charge of what was called the four-year plan office which allocated money to all of the services um, and, and and also he'd have to argue with the, the finance minister as well. Um, Hitler wasn't really into, you know, he wasn't, he couldn't say it was like an austerity, uh, an austerity. <laughs> he, definitely wasn't, he definitely wasn't an austerity leader. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the, the most, you know, the most large, yes, you know, it's like Hitler's furlough payments would have been three times as, as as big as we gave away. I mean, Hitler really was a spend, spend, spend type of person and how you paid for it. He, he just didn't want to know. It wasn't one of them. He was one of them who he, he, he maxed out his credit card and then he maxed out another one. He, he never really thought about the consequences of money. So once someone gave him an idea, he'd say, Right, throw money at that. So then, once you got his say so, which which uh, Dernitz did, he just gave him money unlimited. So there was unlimited funds. There were unlimited funds there available, um, and there was arguments between Albert Speer then because he became the armaments minister, didn't he? And Albert Speer wasn't that keen on on giving money, more money to the navy, but he did buy into this submarine idea because Dernitz mm. has said, look. We can still make a difference with, with these uh, submarines. If we build enough, we can make a difference. And Spear said in 1944, the, the, the output was getting up, you know, to they were getting like putting 200 more in into the battle. So, you know, it, it was in some way it was working, although the actual uh, they were knocking out some. Uh, there were some heavy losses in 1944 in the merchant fleet. Um, but nothing in the Atlantic. They couldn't get through to the Atlantic. They did very badly in the Atlantic, the, the German submarines. And they mm. they basically, they would send seven in a convoy and, and the these squads would just knock them out. So it became a kind of nil-sum game, really. Yeah, they kept on going. I suppose the other, the other um, aspect to this is... Uh, We've got the Germans deciding to invest in the subs because they're cheaper. They can they can kind of specialise in them. But then then again, they build um, Bismarck and Tirpitz, which uh, you know they're the largest battleships ever built by any European power. So um, still quite keen. It's very it does seem quite Hitler, doesn't it? To uh, keen to make a um, political point to have a status ship. Well, yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. They are they are stasis ships. Although there's the, the but remember, Sam, there's only two of them, <laughs> and the British and Americans have got about thirty two of those. So it, it's a bit, you know, it's 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 sort of like a big. There's a big disparity, you know. It's like that. I don't know whether 
it comes in naked gun where the fella pulls a gun on him and then he pulls out a massive gun in front of him. It's a very even bigger gun, you know. So it's a it's a bit like that, really. It's sort of um it's it's ill-coordinated. I mean, when you think of, of Hitler and his running of the war. The main problem I've got is that he, he was very poor on global strategy. Um, I mean, look at his main ally. His main ally was was supposed to be, well, it was Mussolini, if you like, but it, it was really Japan. Japan was his, was his main ally. He never met the Japanese leader. He never coordinated strategy. The Japanese never told him they were going to invade uh, Pearl Harbor. And so all of these things makes you think, you know, where was the coordination here? I mean, how do you have an ally that launches an attack that brings America into the war, which let's face it for your ally it has some implications here. And he, and the Japanese don't even bother to, uh, to contact him, you know, and Mussolini, Mussolini was a useless ally, probably the worst ally that you could have. And Mussolini lied to him all the time. You know, every time he asked Mussolini, you know, what's going to happen in, you know, in, in Tobruk or whatever, oh, we will, we'll, we'll muddle through. We just need more tanks and we need a bit more grain or whatever. You know, it was all lies. You know, and after a while, I think towards the end, he says, you know, I think Mussolini is just a big bluffer. You know, and that's why in one of the books they call him the the biggest show off ever and the worst military leader. Yeah, the um. There's a kind of a middle ranking area of shipping as well in between Bismarck, the great battleship, yeah, and yeah. the U-boats. So you've got these heavy commerce raiders like yeah. Rashby and and yeah. and, uh, and Shear and stuff. How do they fit into the plan? Well, they they, tr- they are trying to to build as many of them as they can, um, but they never they never really get the numbers up to be a, a you know a danger to the Allies in that way. Um, and also after 1943, there's a kind of uh, you know, a kind of embargo on building too many ships because they need they need the resources for the Eastern Front and then they need the resources for, for D-Day military resources. And Hitler's always thinking in terms of military resources. He thinks he can win the war just with the military. I mean, that's another of his strategic errors, um, not to see the importance of the Navy and to see of how, how much that will help uh, the Americans to come to Britain and to replenish their armies on Western Europe. And he's going to lose the war that way, you know, because there's going to be a second front opened up, but it's going to be ultimately, and as you know, it does become, you know, in the end, the Allies could have gone all the way to Moscow, couldn't they? And, it, and Stalin could have gone all the way to the coast. I mean, so so the, the in the end, the, the the German army is like, it's 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 a weak army. At the end, at the end, it's a it's a weak army. It's brave. To, I mean, you know, the people who fought for Germany, you've got to say they were very brave. They they did fight right to the end, um, and they were very good soldiers uh, as well. And they had you know, and they had some good leaders as well. But um, the Allies were just. I mean, they were devastating. I mean, once they once they got across the bridge at Rheinmagen. The Allies were devastating towards the end of the war. I mean, they were devastating anyway. This, The power that they produced, and we always go on about the Blitzkrieg, forget the Blitzkrieg. Look at what the Allies were doing in Western Europe as they as they captured Germany. You know, devastating um, artillery, devastating air attacks, never seen before. I mean, I think, one, I think it was uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower who said he went to a battlefield in France, 
um, you know, towards the end of the of the of the uh, D-Day operation. And he said it looked like it was like a lunar landscape. He said it looked completely definite desolate for miles ahead he said i've never seen anything like this and he said and i thought to myself how do you defend against that and i mean that shows the the difference there you know and and, and that also we know don't we that the, the the russians sort of learned how to overcome the blitzkrieg didn't they it was kind of trial and error but in the end they were they were they knew how to do it and so there was no, there was nothing um there was nothing surprising about the German attack. I think early on, the Germans just had the initiative. They were keen on war. They were keen on the, these conquests and all the rest of it. And the Allies didn't want the war. Remember, none of the Allies wanted the war. The Russians didn't want the war either. They didn't want to be invaded either. And then when it was going, there was kind of that feeling, oh, God, I'm fighting again. Oh, God, I didn't want to fight. Whereas the Germans had this kind of idea of we're fighting positively. We're, we, you know, we, we are in this to win it. So and then once that faded, once we were able to hold them, I think I think the turning point really is is on is on land. It's it's the two turning points really. The first is the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain told you they weren't going to invade Britain. The turning points in any war can be judged according to so many different criteria and seen from so many different perspectives. So I was wondering where you what you thought Hitler's perspective on the turning points were. What do you reckon Hitler saw as the most important moments? It's very hard to say because, you know, if you look at his table talks and if you look at his meetings with his and the naval and the military meetings, um, he, he, he never wants to accept that the war is lost. So he only accepts when he hears there's been a defeat. So in that sense, he kind of just goes on from defeat to defeat. He doesn't want to get into because, Sam, once you start getting in, once we start having a chat, about what's the turning point in your life and et cetera, et cetera. You know, you've got to make an admission, haven't you? Oh, I should have done that programme for the BBC and now I'd be, you know, on American television or something. You know, and I could say, well, I should have took that job in America and it didn't take it. You know, we've all got the, those personal turning points. Hitler didn't seem to work like that. He, he seemed to sort of didn't want to face up to saying, oh, Stalingrad, that, that's a massive turning point for you. Um, yeah. He did hint at it. I mean, during the Moscow campaign, he said, I don't want to end up like Napoleon. Now, by saying that he didn't want to end up like Napoleon meant that he did know about what happened to Napoleon. A big coalition got together and defeated him. And I think that he sort of saw that. Even when you can see it through the, the, uh, the Goebbels' diaries, when Goebbels, and Goebbels wants to get out the war, you know, from 1943, he says to Hitler quite openly, you know, we're not going to win this war. Our best bet is a peace settlement. And he says the best way of getting a peace settlement is probably with Stalin. He said, because he's more, he's more flexible and ruthless and he wouldn't mind throwing over the Allies to have a peace settlement. Um, and then... Then Hitler says, well, I think maybe the Allies, because they might treat us a bit better if we go with the Allies. But he says in any in any respect, they're not going to offer us a peace settlement. So in that way, he was more realistic. He said, I don't think they're going to offer us a peace settlement. They've, they've, they've hitched their wagon, he said, to this unconditional surrender, and they're going to stay there. So what can we do? He said, the only thing we can do is fight to the death. 
And he said, and if we fight to the death and we lose, we lose honorably. And that's, he said, the way I want to go. Yeah. And I'm, I suppose as historians, it's easier for us to, to label things as turning points, isn't it? Well, I think we do this all the time, you know, uh, um, uh, and it's it's very uh, it's very poor way of looking at historical development. I give you a good example: the Summer of Love. You know, nineteen sixty-seven. Everyone was wearing flour in the hair, right? And I remember being in the school football team in nineteen sixty-seven, and I've got a picture of it. There I am. Summer of 1967 in the team photo with a short back and sides. There was no summer of love in Liverpool. There was no <laughs> there was no summer of love in Bolton. There was no summer of love in Berry. There was no summer of love in Burnley. You know, and what, what was it? It was a creation of the media. It was, it was the media reporting on a few people who were doing these things and then magnifies it. There was a summer of love. There wasn't. And, you know, we yeah. do this all the time. You know, it's uh, it's it's funny. It's like the Weimar Ger- Germany, which I'm write, you know, writing a book and it's going to come out later this year. But um, what's interesting is that the culture of Weimar doesn't have any real impact on the politics of Weimar. You know, it's not like sort of they're all standing around saying, oh, yeah, ooh, that, those cabarets. And we must integrate them into the government system or whatever. So there's another one, you know, the kind of cabaret culture. That's another summer of love, if you like. And we do it all the time, you know, the, the enlightenment, yeah. You know, and that poor bloke down in Burnley isn't, isn't being enlightened by anyone, you know, the Renaissance, yeah. <laughs> you know, most people in Europe have never seen a, a, a painting, <laughs> and yet there's, there's a Renaissance. Who's the Renaissance for, you know? So I think we, we do do this. We do it with turning points. We do it with these catch-all phrases. And the truth is that most of history, and this is why we make it sound clearer than it was, most history is muddled. And yeah. and most of the things that happen in history happen because of cock-ups. They don't happen because of planning. It's like a cock-up. You've made a cock-up and it gets found out. That's why. That's what happens. And we see this. I mean, now in Britain, we get this every day. <laughs> yeah. And just to note to our listeners, if you're interested in this approach, then do listen to the episode uh, on um, Ferdinand Magellan with Philippe Fernandez Amesto, because he makes exactly the same point. He's a man who embraces chaos as a narrative <laughs> in history. Um, let's just finish up, Frank, by just saying, um, what does... What does Hitler's relationship with his navy tell us about him as a man and, and as a leader? I think what it tells us is that Hitler was uh, slightly fixated on one way of winning the war. And he, he says this in, in Mein Kampf, we must gain this territory, this Lebensraum. And this Lebensraum, and after a while, this becomes his kind of, it's kind of like a, a stick of Blackpool rock. If you cut him in half, it says Lebensraum. And that is the key. He he sees territorial uh, acquirement as the key part of his foreign policy. And that means tanks, artillery, uh, huge armies. Uh, it doesn't mean a navy. He doesn't see he doesn't really look at the world like a globe where there is sea. You know, we know, don't we, that most of the world is is water, is sea. He didn't see that for Hitler. Most of the world was land, and he was fixated mm. on gaining land. 
um, because his, his he, focus is south and east. Isn't yeah, it? his focus is east. It's the Eastern Europe because he thinks that the West won't be as bothered if he takes over the Soviet Union. Maybe they'll even thank him for getting rid of the Soviet Union. Um, maybe they would actually, <laughs> but <laughs> but I think that that's his fix. His fix. His problem is fixation. His real problem is he's got that mind. You know, he's got a mind that's sort of, you know, it's like a stopped clock. He can't change. He, he's unchanging. I think I, I haven't read everything about Hitler from you know when he was young through his life. He's one of them people, you know, I, I meet people who, who, who have changed. You can tell you meet them 10 years on and they say, God, he's, he's so different than he used to be. You know, most of us do change. You know, most of us, when we go back to say when we were 25 or something, we felt really shy and now we don't feel shy. Most of us, we used to worry about what other people talked about. us. Now we don't. We're, we're too old and ugly to worry about that. You know, and, 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 and I think with Hitler, he didn't change. He stayed the same. He was kind of like a kind of, how do you say, a kind of deranged piece of pan. That's interesting, isn't it? Whether no one sort of is holding up a mirror to him or he's not, not prepared no. to do that himself. He, he never would have bought that record uh, by Michael Jackson, the man in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. So, um, yeah, the summer of love and the deranged Peter Pan, and that explains Hitler's relationship <laughs> with his it. baby. Frank, you're a genius. Thank you so much for your time. See you, Sam. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please do not make this the last thing you do to interact with our wonderful podcast. Firstly, please check out our fabulous YouTube channel where you will find a whole range of brilliant videos exploring our maritime past in entirely new ways. If you're interested in 20th century naval warfare, please make sure that you look at our animation of the eyewitness plan of the Battle of Tsushima and our 3D animation of one of the Japanese aircraft carriers that launched the attack on Pearl Harbour. There's even a remarkable 3D scan of a midget submarine stranded on a beach in Scotland. Please remember that this pod comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and Lloyd's Register Foundation. You can find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up. It's a wonderful way to meet people and learn all about our maritime past. And you can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. Please be sure to check out their latest project, Maritime Innovation in miniature filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment the results are mind-blowing
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.